You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. I guess because I, I have deadlines that they make me meet, and when I world build, I can find out really nerdy facts and tell myself that I'm working. I'm Essa Huang. I'm Marsha Ryan Moreska. I'm Rowena Miller, and this is episode 111, Let's Pick a Fight, Balancing Realism and the Fantastical in Martial Matters. Welcome, Lisa, to joining us today. We're so excited to have a fantastic guest with us on the podcast. I don't think we have any announcements, do we, Marshall? I should have thought of this before. We don't specifically, other than, you know, Hugo voting oh, is open. Yeah. If you're eligible to vote, this has totally left our brain. If you're eligible to vote and you like what we do and you think that we should win, then you should you, you should vote for us. And, and that's, that's about as much pitch yes, as I have. That's, and, that's all I'm going to give, yeah. And also, if you like what our guest does and thinks she should win for the categories she's nominated in, uh, then you should vote for, for those as well. I mean, since... Thank you, Marshall. <laughs> as long as we're, as long as we're doing that, yes. Yeah, as long as we're doing that, let's make sure, let's make sure we spread it fairly and evenly. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, Thank you. And by the time that our listeners get a hold of this, your book will have launched because as we're recording, it's coming out tomorrow. So it's coming. it'll have been out for like a couple of weeks when this comes out. Can you tell us more about this latest work? Yes, absolutely. So my book that's coming out tomorrow is The Water Outlaws, and it is a an epic fantasy uh, based on a Chinese classic novel, Water Margin, about bandits that rise up against an oppressive empire. And But I've reimagined it starring all women and queer people, basically my, my gender-spun version of bandits. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited. It's going to be like evocative of wuxia and Chinese cinema and um, uh, lots of action, which I'm sure we'll be getting into. And uh, yeah, it's, it's actually already out in the UK and coming out tomorrow in the US. Yay! Oh, that sounds so awesome. So I am trying to remember, how many books do you have out, Lisa? Oh, gosh. See, this is a complicated question. Yes, it question. is. Because <laughs> for, for our listeners who are compiling to-be-read lists, this is not Lisa's first book. So if this all sounds good, there's a backlist. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, I, my first series was the Cast Wrestle series, starting with Zero Sum Game. It's about a, a super-powered anti-hero whose super, superpower is doing math really, really fast. And she uses it to kill a lot of people because that's what you do with math. And that one, it's a, a little bit ambiguous because it was self-published first and then picked up for trade publishing, but then they sort of rearranged things a little bit. So there's either five books or three books that have come out in that series so far. And uh, then Burning Roses is my uh, fantasy novella that's about Hoi the Archer and um, from Chinese mythology and uh, Little Red Riding Hood if she were like a slightly bitter middle-aged ex-assassin who's like trying to find redemption <laughs> and they go on adventures together. And uh, I was also a member of the Vela writing crew with Yoon Holly, Becky Chambers and River Solomon. And that is a novel length uh, a book out from Serial Box that I wrote 
one fourth of. <laughs> so the question of how many novels it's at this point? Lots of books, slightly... but lots of words. Yeah. Thank you to be read if exactly. people would like to seek exactly. them out. That's fantastic. So when you were creating the world for um, your your newest release with Water Bandits and Busha and all kinds of fantastic stuff, what were some of the inspirations that you had? Well, the the book is uh, like I, I mentioned, it's a reimagining of a Chinese classic novel. And when people think like classic literature, they usually don't think like super vulgar bandits and lots and lots of violence. But I feel like they should. Fun adventure. They should. They completely <laughs> should. And that is exactly what this original uh, Chinese novel is. Of course, it's it's totally different from you know modern day narrative traditions uh, anywhere in the world. It's it's incredibly sprawling. It's epic. Um, you know, I had to do a lot of sort of uh, reimagining to bring it sort of into our um, twenty what century are we in twenty first century? Something like that. Uh, Something like uh, that. Publishing yeah. <laughs> time. Yeah. Uh, so that was, uh, of course, the main inspiration. Um, the the book takes the original novel takes place in the Song Dynasty, China. And uh, my book is uh, epic fantasy in a secondary world, but strongly inspired by Song Dynasty China. So I, I pulled a lot of my world building from that, did a, a ton of research because I was rearranging things and changing things a little bit, but I wanted to make those intentional choices. You know, I didn't want to just be like glossing over uh, history and culture in a very thoughtless way. I wanted to say, okay, if I'm moving this around or adding something supernatural here, I'm intending to make that change. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I'm a huge research nerd. So I have to ask, what were some of your favorite, <laughs> just like little tidbits or things that you found while researching the Song Dynasty that you're like, this is making it in the book. I have to put this in. Well, one thing I had a lot of fun with is um, there are cameos of real people in this book. Like every time I needed somebody to just like exist for like half a page and then die, it's almost <laughs> always a real person. <laughs> And I, I put it in the acknowledgments if anybody uh, wants to take a look after reading, um, you know, thank you, thanking these uh, uh, people for their uh, their faces and names in <laughs> in my book. So basically, like the uh, the first person to write down the formulas for gunpowder is like in here and then, you know, gets executed because, you know, Cause why not? Uh, also. Yeah, um, the Song Dynasty also had a very famous female general, and uh, her husband makes an appearance. You know, if there are sequels or something, I could see them coming back, something like that. So that was a lot of fun. The the most fun facts, though, I would say, came from my uh, tour was kind enough and thoughtful enough to hire uh, an authenticity reader and cultural consultant for this book because it's so heavily cultural and it's based on something that's uh, so important in sinosphere literature. And we wanted to make sure, you know, I was changing it a lot, but we wanted, again, to make sure that it was all intentional and I wasn't uh, doing anything that I w didn't mean to. And oh my gosh, the, the authenticity was amazing. I was like a nerd cloud nine <laughs> afterwards. I think people have a, a lot of um, preconceptions about things like sensitivity reads, uh, which I guess this could be considered one. Um, that there's something like a shaming or shaking their finger at you or something and it, no it's i've you know had several of these types of reads done uh, by people who are like experts in their material and it's just amazing like the what they can say that's like oh i didn't realize it you know i'm gonna put this in so uh, one of the some of the most interesting facts i learned from the authenticity reader uh, one of them was uh, burnishing mirrors is apparently an old-timey euphemism for lesbian sex. Uh, 
Am I allowed to say that? You can say whatever you want. (laughs) Yes. Are we uh, G-rated here? Um, So I thought that was awesome. Like in in China, I mean, uh, obviously. Um, I didn't actually uh, get to use it in the book anywhere, but I'm saving that in my pocket and I was just thrilled to learn it. That seems like that, yes, that's going to have to come out at some point, I imagine. Right. I it's going to happen. No, I, I, what, I, once that information is in your brain, it's got to <laughs> it's gotta be used. I, mean. I know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Another thing I got really into was uh, I was emailing my editor after I got the authenticity notes with, uh, you know, a... Uh, quoting the comment, this is one of my huge areas of nerd interest, which is there's a particular character in Chinese that it's a color word and it can mean black, green, or blue, depending on context and (laughs) a lot of other things and what it's compounded with. And I have a, I love linguistics and I have a particular fascination with linguistic color words. And for those who don't know, linguistics in in most cultures, maybe even in all that have been studied, color words tend to branch into dark and light first, like black and white. And then if there's a third one, I think it's usually red. And then if there's a fourth one, it's often grew, like a green blue. And then they'll like differentiate more from there. So this color character, it's like so interesting to me because it's in so many things that get translated so many different ways now. Uh, like there's a, a story that I've actually based a short story on called Legend of the Legend of the White Snake, and there's a green snake sister, or is she a blue snake sister, or is she a black snake sister? I've seen all three translations, and depending on what compound word it's with, sometimes it's very clear, like green leaves or something, you know, would uh, one would think, or, or blue bruises or something having to do with the skin. Um, but this character also got ported into Japanese. And in modern Chinese, modern Chinese has totally different modern words for both green and blue. Japanese has uh, uses this word in modern day for blue and has a totally different word for green, except they still use this old character for traffic lights, for green fruit, for green leaves, like some all these compound words. So if you're in Japan and you say the light is green when you're driving, you're actually saying the light is blue, but you're using this character that has like come out of Chinese when it used to mean like all three colors. It's amazing. I love this. I get just like get so into it. Um, so the authenticity reader had left a, a note on that. And I was just like going on to my editor about this, about how like into this I was. I love that you bring this up because you're right. I think that often when people talk about sensitivity reads, authenticity reads, it's it's like people are expecting a combative experience. And it's like, I, I have not had been had a sensitivity read or an authenticity read, um, but I've even had some copy editors who have like pointed stuff out. And I'm like, oh, it's, it's so much more collaborative, I think, than people recognize. Exactly. And that like, you're not, you're not writing a book because you don't care about the subject, like you care about the subject and you find some other person who also cares about the subject and you're nerding out together about the fact that you care about yep. the subject. And it's actually such an opportunity, I think to collaborate and just like just enjoy some of the nerdy stuff that we enjoy as writers (laughs) i completely agree just the term authenticity read like already that sounds less combative than sensitivity i think i think that that makes a big difference in in how it can feel I agree. And that's the way they, they referred to the position as authenticity reader or called cultural consultant, which I, and, and, and those are better terms. Hired. I like that. Yeah, I, like that. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, it's really respecting the, the reader's scholarship too, because uh, the person they got is like, not only, you know, expert in like Chinese culture and stuff, but like history and water margin in particular, right? Like this was a, a scholarship, you know, respect for that expertise and scholarship, uh, definitely. 
no, I completely agree with both of you that every time I've had an editor, either for novels or short stories, bring up a concern about like identity or you know something related to how people would respond to something I'd written, it's always been very collaborative. It's been like, let's raise this, let's have a discussion, and about. 80% of the time, I think I've thought that, you know, it was something I just hadn't seen myself. And, you know, we thought about it and ended up making a change. And maybe it wasn't the change that they suggested originally. But, you know, I once I thought about it, I realized I wanted to rejigger things somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Writing's fun. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so we're talking about Marshall stuff today. Not Marshall Moran Maresca, but like Marshall as in, <laughs> as in, you know, fighting styles and considering all of that. Now, not only, Lisa, do you write about fighting people coming to blows and whatnot, but that was a, a past career life for you. Am I correct? Uh, and, and, and current, current okay. Pen, pending, pending COVID. I used to do <laughs> movies full time and writing on the side. Now I do writing full time and movies on the side, but uh, COVID has uh, for sure put a crimp in that uh, so hopefully that'll clear up completely as time goes on when one can be one can always hope can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how you work with film um, and what you do for sure. for for movies yeah uh, so uh, I'm a stunt person and a weapons expert for movies and television um, as a stunt person I think most people know what stunt people do we go on the set and we you know perform fights either uh, as general performers who are filling in the fights or um, to double actors and actresses who uh, perhaps don't either don't have the training or you know we're very worried about their, their safety they sub us in <laughs> to, to perform the fights um, and uh, you know as such I've done a lot of thinking about fighting in the context of story as has everybody who works on fights in film and uh, as a, a weapons expert uh, also known as an armor um, that's uh, using firearms and I would basically come in on the set and that would be my department and um, I would work with the director train the actors uh, and we'd figure out collaboratively how to do firearm scenes in a way that number one is going to be safe for everybody involved number two uh, we'll get what the director wants in terms of vibe and look cool uh, while keeping everybody safe. And um, so, yeah, those are the two things I do for film. I think it's also fascinating. Are there, I, I think that we often joke about everyone having kind of like their thing that they get kind of like, you know, when something isn't right, you know, oh, yeah. like, I, <laughs> and, and, oh, and there, gun, gun, the, nobody gets the, guns there are plenty in fantasy um, to, to pick on. Um, but are there any, especially from your perspective, um, as a stunt person and as an armor that like frequently are are not done quite right and I guess if you want to pair it with you know, why does it matter uh, that's a good question um, I would say one of the biggest things and I actually wrote an article for tour.com about this a while ago if anybody wants even further thoughts on it but um, epic fantasies a lot of times have swords or other bladed weapons right including mine <laughs> because swords are awesome um, and a lot of times I think people, especially in this day and age, when most of us are not used to being around sharp swords, uh, don't treat them as dangerous enough. Like these are really dangerous weapons and they're made for killing people, you know? And um, most of the work that we do in movies, we're not using sharp swords. Obviously we're using, <laughs> people always ask, are they real swords? Like yes, real, they're real, they're real metal. We didn't put an edge on it. <laughs> exactly, exactly, they're not sharp. Um, however, I've been in the room with sharp swords before, and it's amazing. Like, 
you can feel how dangerous it is. Uh, it's like it has its own gravity well, you know, in the way people respond to it. And swords, uh, you know, this was somebody drawing a sword, like that is an incredible uh, threat, right? Like if you've ever been around, say, sharp kitchen knives, which is, I think, uh, in modern day, perhaps most of our um, uh, frame of reference for like a sharp blade would be like a very sharp kitchen knife. Sometimes even that, somebody picks it up and if you're not used to sharp kitchen knives, there's like a response to that, right? And if somebody pointed it at you, that would feel very, very threatening, right? So I think a lot of times in fantasy, we don't remember that, you know, these these very, very cool and romanticized weapon swords um, are actually also very, very dangerous. And uh, why is this important? Well, I mean, you know, uh, sometimes if we're writing something, you know, humorous or uh, satirical, maybe it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, but I, um, I would say uh, I, I do like, I, I love action, obviously. You know, I write a lot of action. I write a lot of violence. Um, but I also really like, in, uh, like is the wrong word, but um, I think it's valuable to interrogate violence. Um, and I think it's valuable to interrogate violence that we romanticize, which I think swords are and to remember things like that and uh, sort of thought-provoking to us in, uh, in the modern day as well, I think, yeah. or it can be. I think it's, it's, it's interesting you bring up how much we romanticize swords. And I think a lot of old weapons, um, like flintlock pistols, they're actually very pretty. Yeah, sure. they're, they can be beautiful, but they're gorgeous. They're also like I would. I don't want to look down the barrel of one. They will put a hole in a black bear. I don't want to. You know, like no, thank <laughs> you. Yeah. And yeah. Fun fact: not actually even considered weapons by the ATF yes, in the yes. United States. Yes. Um, <laughs> or by um, which I have discovered because we do. My my family um, does some like living history stuff. Um, most schools actually do not. Most school districts do not consider them weapons either. So you actually can bring. You know, obviously you would talk to the school first, but one would. Hope. But you can, if, <laughs> for like educational stuff, you can actually bring flintlock um, weapons no to way. show school kids, that which. That seems like such a poor idea. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I say this as somebody yeah. who loves guns, but you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to trust somebody a lot to trust them with, you know, third graders yeah. and a firearm show and tell. Right, right. Obviously, no touching involved, um, and I would hope that. Yeah, yeah. and no, no, no ammunition, ammunition. black powder left <laughs> at home. Um, yeah. But it is. It was interesting. Unless just like, we're at a range, right? Like, like researching like. this. I was like, oh, yeah. okay. So apparently, it doesn't. Even though it's you know, just as deadly as a modern firearm in terms of if you get hit by it um so yeah it's, it's, it's interesting yeah. how we don't think about you know antique Absolutely. weaponry um i think i think i think you are right that giving it the respect it deserves um it probably helps us write our characters more realistically because they they are respecting these weapons they aren't looking at these weapons as lesser than or antique or less in any way it's like this is the prime technology of the age and it can kill me yeah i think that's absolutely true like how the characters respond to weapons lends this for similitude to them I, there's a class i teach called horses guns and so horses guns and swords and uh it's about horses guns and swords <laughs> which i know a lot about <laughs> because of my other other work and that's one thing i really stress a lot in that class for right it's a class for writers obviously and um you know, just how much you can bring to the world building and to the character by having them respond to weapons as weapons. Right. Absolutely. One thing I was thinking about in coming to this episode was, um, you know, if we're going to dig deep into talking about 
creating realistic versus fantastical is thinking about how fighting unfolds in your world something that you think that every fantasy author needs to at least consider or think about or is it only for a certain kind of story i think that we often think of of weapons as being like well that's for a certain kind of story that like you know if there's going to be punches thrown and epic battles and things like that that's when we think about it um do you think that most people should give it a thought i mean i i think like anything else in world building there are for sure there are for sure going to be stories that it matters more to and not. I think also just like almost anything else in world building, uh, giving some thought to if it's not relevant to the characters, why is it not relevant um, is probably a, a good idea, can be a good idea, just how uh, uh, not necessarily even weapons, but how conflict and violence uh, manifest in your world and how normalized it is, right? Like some societies, violence is very normalized. Some societies, it's super not. You know, I would say 21st century America most places, not all places, uh, unfortunately, um, violence is is quite un- unnormalized, fortunately. Um, if I went into an office building and started punching people, I think there would be <laughs> security <laughs> called, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't just like punch me back and say like, duel accepted yes. or something. Yeah, right? it's, it's like, like the scene in be... Everything Everywhere All at Once in the IRS office. Like the response right? to that is yeah. what is happening? Not, exactly. well then, let's go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's a fight now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's unexpected. It's shocking. Um, I actually I had a fight teacher once who who talked about how uh, he'd been hit like twice in his life, and he said both times the instant response for him was uh, just this shock of civilized people don't hit other civilized people. What is happening? You know. So I mean, I think a lot of people in in my circles tend to uh, avoid violence in everyday life quite easily. Um, but that's also like very much a product of people's background um, and uh, where where they come from, where they're going, where they exist in society, right? So uh, this is uh, a good thing to keep in mind. And uh, even in this day and age, unfortunately, there are uh, certainly many places in, in society um, in this country. Uh, I live in the United States and in many other countries where, you know, violence is not so avoidable and, uh, you know, why that happens and whether that's something that affects character uh, in your book. Oh, I like what you say too about thinking about, you know, if a character and someone has the privilege to not think about violence fighting weapons conflict why is that what creates yeah. that for them that's a really good point so if we are creating the kind of story that's going to have some on-screen fighting in it what are some of the things that you feel are important for people to think about when developing whether it's weapons, fighting style, how people come to a conflict, what are things that are important to take into consideration? Mm, let's see. I already mentioned a few of them, like uh, the normalization of violence in society, like how far it goes. I think a cultural, anything cultural that has to do with weaponry, um, we we have a lot of culture that intersects with weapons, I think, and we always have, not just things like politics, which I think is very obvious to us in modern day, uh, but also like ritual, um, things like that. Uh, If you uh, think about what probably intersecting with how we romanticize swords is that swords have uh, also been part of a lot of ceremony, uh, uh, ceremonial ritual in various cultures. I think also different cultures have evolved different weapons a lot of the time, so kind of uh, looking at that and those differences, looking at what kinds of weapons your character would have given where they come from in society, even if they're all armed, Maybe they're armed in different ways, uh, depending on where they come from. You know, uh, a well-made sword might be extremely expensive. 
might be hard for somebody to get, uh, require resources that your world doesn't have. You know, a lot of these things intersect with other areas of world building, I think. Uh, so I guess just like just like anything else in world building, you sort of pe- peel back the corner, suddenly all, all the dominoes. Everything else is there too. Yeah, I mean, because you're, you're right. You're thinking about things like technology level and, you know, what access, social stratification, all that stuff is just kind of sitting right there. Sometimes I think of too is, you know, if, if you're thinking about weapons, to what level are they mass produced versus kind of like crafted? Um, which I think yes. is interesting because you kind of have like the, the high epic fantasy stereotype is you have you have your sword and the sword has been created by a master craftsman. And that it's certainly a way that you can go in terms of thinking about where did the weapon come from? And that opens up other whole other questions of well, who makes these things and how are they you know valued by society yeah. but you can go the other direction of you know it's the orc weapons factory in saruman's basement and it's just you know <laughs> mass producing knocking out swords too. knocking yeah. knocking out whatever what do they call those yeah. i forget i'm a i'm a bad fantasy nerd i can't remember what those were called oh i don't remember yeah. either i'm sorry our, our listeners <laughs> i'm sure our listeners will correct yeah, us later <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, one thing we have seen throughout history is how uh, weaponry intersects uh, with uh, how war can drive technology and how, you know, these sorts of uh, political questions and competitions kind of inform what weaponry is available and who has access to what. Uh, and then all that can spill into other areas of life as well. And also the factors of, you know, because something's not available, you pick up whatever you have handy be it like farm tools or kitchen tools or what have you and like well this is going to be a weapon now and then maybe over the course of time that that gets normalized as a weapon for one reason or another absolutely and then one more factor that we get to consider as fantasy writers is to what degree does magic play into questions of weapons and fighting oh gosh yeah yeah definitely (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what to say, <laughs> say about that. It's like, a true thing. We do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Such a huge question, right? Like, um, there's so many ways that that can happen that I think uh, can be really, really fascinating for sure. What are some ways that you can think of that that's been done in interesting ways or done well? I mean, certainly um, one of the things that's been on my mind while writing this book uh, has been the way Wuxia media, Chinese cinema, Hong Kong cinema have uh, woven martial arts in with uh, essentially magic mm-hmm. um, and how uh, it's, it's very interesting how it, uh, there's a lot of scholarship that's kind of been written about how in in this uh, sort of paradigm that we're looking at that martial arts and skill at martial arts can become... Uh, it becomes representative of morality. Like if somebody's really good at martial arts, that person is automatically seen within this paradigm of the literary tradition as a good person, right? We see we see their their skill and we say, oh, they are they are noble. They are they're, they're therefore noble and honorable and a good person. Um, and that is you know something that to varying degrees you know appears quite a lot in this tradition. Yeah, I think uh, there are some very interesting ways where that can intersect um, with uh, between weaponry and, and maybe some. Uh, I guess that's not so much supernatural, uh, but uh, a lot of a lot of in Wuxia, a lot of um, uh, the supernatural is a bit understated. I mm-hmm. think, which I've tried to sort of adapt in this book in ways that uh, perhaps we don't see quite as much in Western epic fantasy, and I hope I've done it justice. 
Anyway, I am I am by no means an expert in wuxia. I just enjoy watching it once in a while. Um, but one of the things I do find interesting is that it doesn't it doesn't seem to separate out pe- the facets of people quite as much. That fighting, yes, you know, yeah. consideration of one's inner life, yeah, these things all kind of go together. And if magic is going to get folded in, it gets folded in along with everything else. And it's it is interesting to yeah. watch with someone who's not as steeped in that. Like it's like, oh, this is different. This is kind of refreshing to think yeah. about it this way. You're exactly right. Where a lot of Western epic fantasy, we're used to this idea of there is magic and a magic system. And if you're using magic, that's different from using something else. And if you can do magic, you're like a magician who can do magic. Exactly. Or you're somebody. Like, like what role do you Um, play in the story? Are you a knight or other form of soldier? Or are you a magician? You get to pick one. Exactly. Are you a stabby exactly. person or a magic person? You have yeah. to be one or the other. Yeah. <laughs> stabby or sorcery. Pick one. Yeah. But yeah, like a lot of Wuxia, it seems like just the concepts of magic are just so much more just integrated into the body and part of like just mm-hmm. what people are capable of rather than yep. some separate thing. And it's very, it's not uncommon at all for it to sort of come up briefly you know three quarters of the way through something or you know and then not rear its head ever again um because it's just sort of a a part of the world that we may or may not have seen thus far i think that's a very interesting uh, way of doing things and i hope uh, i hope that uh, western fantasy fans will give it a chance and uh, i am excited to see how people respond to it yeah i think that people have gotten more open to considering i mean just the points of view of different cultures in general um but but especially i feel like there's a lot more um, embracing of um, storytelling coming out of that tradition, which I think is just awesome because it's it's fun because it's fun to tell stories in different ways. I like yeah, it. Yeah, we, we have we have like th- at least three that I know of Wuxian Xianxia novels this year: Mia Tai's uh, uh, Bitter Medicine, A Wei Chao's Shanghai Immortal, and my book The Water Outlaws, uh, which I, I'm actually appearing in an event with them this week, I think. Um, and uh, I'm just really excited that we're starting to get so much yeah. in conversation on this. Yeah. And it's also great, too, because if people do like it, then there's like, there's something else to read. Got more for you. You're not done. Your TBR will only get exactly. longer. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not I'm sorry. I'm all about that. <laughs> yep, yep. Like, the more we enjoy these other traditions that we might not be familiar with, I think the more we uh, seek out more of them. Like, I, I think it is good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So if people are thinking about making, um, maybe we can kind of like, maybe we can split them apart or maybe it's better putting them together. Um, think about weaponry and fighting styles. Um making it feel realistic within a fantasy world. Like what are things that people should be thinking about? What's key to kind of nailing those elements of realism? Hmm. Oh, this is such a hard question. (laughs) Let's see. Uh, I think um, we've talked about a few things already, which is uh, things like how we respond emotionally to weapons and to violence. Uh, One thing I would say that fantasy really likes to skip over is the amount of training that it's a montage you get a montage (laughs) (laughs) right right um what one reason i was uh kind of excited to make my protagonist older uh she's a a, in her 40s was you have more time to have developed (laughs) this level of skill uh and i think a lot of times especially with our our sort of farm boy narrative that that type of journey. Um, it's a, a bit common to, to have people be prodigies in martial arts, which is, you know, it doesn't, it's not saying that doesn't happen, but it is, I think, more common in fantasy than it might be in the population. <laughs> um, I think people, 
there are some realities in fighting that I think people consistently underrate or don't think about. One is uh, in something like hand-to-hand, the the advantage a weight difference gives, uh, which I I think is this is really interesting, and I I feel like it really kind of reveals people's assumptions. Um, If you do any ring fighting, which I I have trained in some, uh, you know about weight classes, right? Like this is a thing that people do in competition; they're split into weight classes. And the reason for this is that these heavier fighters, you know, have this uh, huge advantage over the lighter fighters. And uh, you get people doing things like spitting into a bucket or like cutting, you know, the day before to try to make sure they maintain their weight class. And that's those are artificial rules of the competition, right? But if you're out in the streets fighting, this is a whole different thing. Um, and, uh, you know, we have such, uh, I guess, ingrained attitudes towards weight in our society that I think, you know, people have this conception that of like bigger people not being good fighters uh, and that's that's just false as a, a small person who has fought many people larger than myself um, many of whom might have been less skilled or less trained um, it's it's huge like any sort of grappling thing like weight is just huge uh, in terms of advantage and people are like oh this you know smaller person will be lighter or faster or you know have better endurance and but those same people will then not automatically assume that women are consistently better fighters than men or something because, you know, we're smaller and lighter, you know, on average. Uh, So uh, I think uh, that's just one example, but I think people, uh, a lot of times we have these sort of assumptions of how fighting works or how weapons work. And if you go and you try it and you have some experience in it, uh, sometimes things will happen in that experience where you're like, oh, this is not like I thought it was, or this is like very uncomfortable in some way, or, you know, when I fire a gun, that's really loud, you know, (laughs) that people (laughs) maybe don't think of uh, without having done it. Wear ear protection. That's, that's our PSA today. Oh yeah. Oh, I've made that note on on so many people's manuscripts. I'm like, (laughs) they either need to put on earplugs or they need to react to this. Yeah. I mean, I probably have hearing damage forever just from like working with guns so much. But that also does make me think about just, you know, a lot of people do do not have the experience of having been in a fight or what being in a fight really is like. I mean, I think so many times when you see some like viral video of a fight breaking out or all that, you can see it almost always in seconds degrades to two people slapping each other with, with absolutely <laughs> oh, yeah. no Hair sense pulling. of like... <laughs> yeah. yeah, Yeah, the idea that what being in a fight is really like, I think a lot of people don't even... Yeah. think about yeah. it they just sort of get this hollywood edited glossed version and in, in their head and then and then write to that and you're absolutely right that real fights are very fast incredibly <laughs> fast and very messy um i will say in the water outlaws i have a little bit fancier fighting just because of the, the genre <laughs> you know can't have a martial <laughs> arts book without some well, and, and i feel like there's an element of that too that there's there's realism and then there is like absolutely. what fits the aesthetic what fits the genre right um yeah. and and yeah. there's There's absolutely a spectrum there. Yep. And there's a big difference between a fight between two very well-trained people and two completely untrained people. Mm -hmm. Like that's going to be, (laughs) that's going to be a very different kind of fight. Definitely. I remember seeing some video a while ago, like sort of, sort of challenging the idea of like, you know, when it's like one master against 20 people and it's like, why don't they all just go at once or something? And, and, and so it, it was a thing of like three like fencing masters against like a hundred guys. 
and like they all had like like a balloon on their chest so if your balloon popped you're out and the three masters like cleared out like 97 97 of the guys like almost immediately and then that last like those last three one-on-one fights so that's what really drew out but it was like like interesting <laughs> but it was their ability to actually quickly dispatch of you know the equivalent of you know a bunch of cannon fodder was actually pretty good and so that that concept is maybe not as far off as we think because all 100 people can't attack at once it's just not practical and so you need to get each other's way if nothing else you need a right. little elbow room <laughs> That's very interesting to know. I love experiments like that. There's one that I'm fond of citing, which is um, the exercise where you give two people rubber knives and put chalk on them and uh, say, like, go, you know, go at it, try to emulate a knife fight. Um, And uh, inevitably, no matter who wins, both parties get covered in chalk. And it's sort of meant to demonstrate that in a knife fight, nobody comes out without getting cut. (laughs) You know, and I feel like a lot of times in knife fights, people kind of put artificial parrying and stuff like that which doesn't really work with knives right they're so close in uh, unless you have magic of course yes. you know that changes all the rules <laughs> well i think that's a good point too of like what's the aftermath of the fight in terms of like who's who's bloodied and how long does that take to heal and like how crappy do you feel the next day like i feel like sometimes that does get glossed over um, in fantasy but like i i don't know about you but like i hurt myself and i'm kind of whiny about it for like a couple days you know like <laughs> And here, again, with the training, training makes you really sore and, you know, it's very difficult and affects you physically. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's another place people sort of gloss sometimes, <laughs> I think. That, that is always the balance. Like, you want your protagonist to get good and beat up, you know, in, in a few fights. But you you then are like, oh, but they have to be at least somewhat in able to handle the scenes after that. Or, <laughs> Where there's going to be another fight, like how do you know, and 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 doing that battle, that's one of the things my editor would always sort of ping me on. It's like I think he's a little too beat up. At this <laughs> maybe, maybe you should maybe let, dial it down. Let him take a nap before you make let him do him anything else today. <laughs> on the plus side, if you injure them a bit, can depower them somewhat, so there's like more stakes and more risk for yes, that final true. battle. That and just the weapon management. I swear, in all of the Thorn books, like, it became almost a running gag that in some fight he just loses his bow in trying to, like, keep track of, like, he just, like, I just gotta drop it and I gotta run. <laughs> and then he's was like, oh, I have to get a new bow now, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> We've touched on this a little bit, but maybe it's worth kind of, like, poking at a little bit more. To what degree are, or should we consider weapons and fighting styles, like, reflective of the larger culture or related to the larger culture or those norms as being like something to consider within the larger culture. So when I'm thinking of was for, for example, the period of history where like, if you were a person of a certain status and male, you carried a sword, but that was just something that you like, you know, that was part of the common culture, but also reflected how people actually fought. Um, and I think there are probably a lot of subtle things like that. Um, what are things to think about in terms of reflecting appropriately a larger culture uh let's see we have touched on a lot of them i'm trying to think of the the most important ones we haven't talked about let's see we talked about uh resources and uh uh, resource privilege and stuff i think one thing that i find particularly fascinating and i think i mentioned this but perhaps didn't go into it is um when two cultures meet 
uh, how these norms on one side or the other interact with each other. If they get into a fight with totally different styles and totally different weapons, what does that look like? What are the emotional and or political consequences of that? It could be very different if the two societies think about violence very differently. Um, yeah, I, I would say that's one that I really, I enjoy seeing if an author, uh, if an author does put that in, is something I really enjoy seeing in books, um, that type of uh, a, a difference in training and styles. Absolutely, yeah. One thing I was wondering about too, what your thoughts were, we were talking earlier about, um, you know, authenticity reads and, and considering um, kind of like the broader cultural context within that. Um, are there times that writers should be careful about utilizing weaponry or fighting styles from cultures that they might not be very familiar with to avoid appropriating um, elements that are perhaps even beyond what they realize that they're appropriating. Like, that sword looks cool, I'll stick it in here. Like, that that means a lot more than you realize it means. Yeah, I think, um, I'm not sure I would say there's something specific to weaponry or fighting, although I'll probably think of something yeah. in a few minutes that will prove me wrong. But uh, certainly, just like anything else, it's, uh, you know, as a Chinese person, it can be pretty painful for me to see somebody has scraped the shiny bits of my culture without really th thinking any more deeply about it or exotifying those. Um, th there's actually quite a history in uh, film in particular and uh, East Asian people in film where for a very long time our, our sole uh, inroad into movies and television was as martial artists. And on the one hand, this is great that people found this in Rose and were able to, to make it, you know, that uh, a Hong Kong cinema like kind of was able to wedge into American slash Hollywood cinema and uh, uh, make this avenue that uh, where Asian people, uh, East Asian people in particular, were able to find work. It's really problematic that it's over <laughs> a long time. That's all there was, right? Um, the... and. It, I, like I love action. I love martial arts action. Right? I just wrote an entire book that was Chinese <laughs> martial arts action. Right? This is not a complaint that we have it, but in the the broader scheme of things, um, I wrote this whole article at one point that's probably on the on the internet still somewhere, uh, saying where where's the East Asian Bruce Willis? Because even in action films, to only have martial arts action and it's really hard to think of a, a major film star East Asian actor who's sort of the, you know, the big action star in uh, a way that a, a person like Bruce Willis is, right? The, uh, the who's not, you know, a martial artist, who's not into the fancy, you know, spinny, kicky, everything. <laughs> and like as a stunt person, I know also as a, a person who looks Chinese, the the amount to which what you look like in film uh, dictates what skills you need to have, right? Like Asian people who want to work in film needing to know martial arts is like it's not a thing that uh, that should be, right? Um, and I'm so excited that we're starting to get films uh, like Crazy Rich Asians, for example, that is a romantic comedy that is all East Asian people, right? Um, or uh, other films that have uh, East Asian stars as uh, w one of many people in the in ensemble cast or something like that. Um, I think we need all this, and uh, and I'm excited to hopefully see uh, more action that isn't necessarily martial arts, like the yeah. East Asian Die Hard. I'm here for it. <laughs> Make it Hollywood. I, love it. I will. I will buy I a love ticket. It. <laughs> yeah. No, I was thinking too of like um, 
you know, a lot. And this is another like, you know, Hollywood delved into that stereotype hard of your villain is um, East Asian. And just how much of that aesthetic often, like even back to like, oh God, you know, like Ming the Merciless in, in Flash Gordon, how much of that was martial and and sometimes military and sometimes related to, to fighting styles. Um, but it was just an aesthetic divorced from everything else about any element of inspiration culture. Yeah. Like there was nothing supporting what was happening it was just kind of you know i think you're so right about that and a lot of times they lean into that sort of inscrutable stereotype right like that that east asian martial arts villain is not really given uh, a strong backstory a lot yeah. of the time or a reason <laughs> they're just a martial arts machine of some sort right or or it's a henchman to the actual like big bad villain but yeah exactly you have to get through that guy first and he's impossible because spinny kicky but (laughs) (laughs) you look at something like the expendables right where you have jet lee among all these other action stars i love jet lee like he's amazing i i will watch anything with jet lee but again he's like the one asian dude is the martial artist right right i mean what you were saying about villains made me think of jet lee in is it lethal weapon four where he's the villain and i don't think i don't think he gets any like actual i mean i don't remember too much about lethal weapon four but i he doesn't he doesn't get a lot of backstory he's just this incredibly lethal human that they yep. have to stop and there isn't really all that much more to it in that movie and, yeah and jelly is brilliant like, oh, yeah, he's, he's brilliant, brilliant. At doing that. he's brilliant at everything but like that shouldn't be the only role right. available to yeah. east asian if, people if, if jelly wants to do a romantic comedy jelly should get to do a romantic comedy I would also pay yes, to see I that. Well. Just saying. Just saying, Hollywood. <laughs> We're giving you free ideas, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we touched on earlier, but maybe deserves a little bit more um, attention given to it, is we have the spectrum of like super hyper-realistic to like vibes-only aesthetic. And when you're making a decision, when it comes to throwing a fight scene into a story... How do you decide where to land on that? Like, where do you decide to go? Like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going full on fantastical magic bonkers on this versus I need to keep it closer. Like, what what do you think are important factors to consider or not consider at all and just go vibes? (laughs) (laughs) I love how you describe that. That end of things is just vibes. It's great. Um, I think uh, like anything else, you know, this is going to intersect with so much else that you're doing in a book, right? And uh, we mentioned genre earlier is one thing that really plays in, right? Genre expectations. Um, uh, To me, I think the biggest thing, uh, and I'm eliding a little bit the answer to your question, sorry, but the the biggest thing to keep in mind is uh, an idea of intentionality and making whatever level of realism you're choosing intentional because it's uh, it's one thing to have a kind of comedic fight in a satirical fantasy where it's it's very uh, off the wall and we accept that there's this great suspension of disbelief and where the author's clearly choosing that. But if you're writing something that's supposed to be gritty and real, 
and the fight reads like this <laughs> off the wall comedic thing to people who are familiar with fighting, um, that's going to cause a, a, a mismatch uh, feeling in a lot of the people reading the book. And, you know, sometimes uh, I'm not saying that there's never a book where an author is going for a mismatch feeling, but <laughs> if you are, again, make that a yeah. choice, right? Like, I, this is something when I teach writing, I'm always like, you can, writing so subjective, you can do whatever you want. But be intentional about it. Be pur- purposeful that this is the effect you're going for in your intended audience. Right. You are you are keeping the trust of the audience on purpose and not losing yep. them somewhere exactly. along yeah. the way, or or subverting or breaking on purpose <laughs> and doing that because you want that particular effect. So I would say, intentionality, purposefulness are uh, really I think some of the biggest things to keep in mind when writing a fight and when deciding on that and then uh, uh, trying to match the how hyper-realistic versus, uh, you know, maybe a little bit surreal or cinematic or uh, comedic or something else uh, to make those fight scenes. Yeah. I think another thing to consider, too, is how important fighting and um, all of this is within the book um, or has been because you're training your reader to some extent. And if you, you know, have to educate your reader to bring them up to speed about how all of this stuff works and what's going to happen and, you know, there, there are some choices there and what you might choose to gloss over um, and and maybe depending on the, character, the perspective character, the perspective character might not know what's going on. They're just going to kind of describe things in a different way than someone who's like really invested and entrenched in, in a participant. So there's there's other ways you can kind of play with it. As I'm thinking of the um, third book in my trilogy, it has a lot of war in it, um, but I also didn't really want to have to completely train my reader on like how large scale 18th century battles would work. Um, so I, I just kind of let my character who doesn't really know what's going on serve as a perspective of someone who's not going to understand all of the strategies and tactics that are happening on the field. And she's not going to know like, Oh, they're having their yeah. dragoons flank the artillery because like, no, we're not doing that because <laughs> she doesn't know what it's talking about. Yeah. And, and I couldn't count on my, my reader, especially for that particular trilogy. Like it was not, it didn't start as a lots of battles trilogy. So it was like, that's not fair yeah. to drag you into that now. No, <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> No one told me yeah. this was going to be on the test. Yes, someday, someday maybe I'll write the giant epic battle, lots of tactics fantasy. But that was not it. That was not the pact I, I made with that reader. <laughs> and I, I think what you describe as, uh, you know, using the POV is a brilliant way of approaching it. And for people who maybe don't want to put in that level of research, uh, you know, sure, just make sure that, you know, your POV is, is seeing things that would be realistic to the level of realism that you want kind of thing. Um, but also something I tell people is uh, uh, having fight serve story is one of the things that I, I kind of harp on a lot as somebody who comes out of film because that's that's all we talk about. Like the, the moves... The moves matter, you know, I love cool moves, I love cool weapons, but what matters even more by a lot is the story, the stakes, the character that the fight is serving. That's uh, true for writing as well. And, you know, getting that right, if you dwell on that emotion, that can take you so far if you uh, don't want to do the sort of blow by blow moves or tactics or, or what have you, um, because that's, that's what will really make a fight feel real or uh, like it has meaning or intensity in the book. So you mentioned research. um, And I thought before we kind of put a wrap on any of this, that might be something that for a lot of um, people feels intimidating with the subject. 
um, maybe more intimidating or more um, less accessible maybe than some other subjects to research. Um, what are tips or tactics to that people can employ to research these kinds of subjects? Um, I would say uh, one thing to keep in mind is um, just like anything else in world building, whatever you choose to research, there will be people who nerd out about it <laughs> and who are <laughs> who are experts who fight about, have different yes. opinions and who fight about what's right and everything. I, I do, a lot of people say if you're going to write about weapons or fighting to try it out yourself, which I do think is valuable. However, I also see the sort of um, uh, difficulty happen where sometimes people try something out and then they think, oh, I can write about what this is like, but they write about it as a beginner experiences it because that's their experience, right? Um, whereas somebody who's much more uh, expert and has, it, 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 where it's old hat would uh, perhaps have a different mindset. Um, so it's good to try out just to sort of I think, uh, uh, break some assumptions and realize, oh, that I never expected this uh, to be true uh, or something like that. Um, but I would say uh, talking, talking to people or uh, reading or listening to people who actually have done this a lot. And we have so much access to that these days in terms of YouTube videos, in terms of uh, Reddit is great for this kind of research where you get you can find the subreddits that are devoted to whatever uh, niche you are writing in uh, for action and see people geeking out about it, see people talking about fights. Um, and uh, uh, that can be really useful as well. I think that sort of personal experience of people all, all up and down the, the experience level. Yeah, I, I do think it's amazing that like, it doesn't matter what you're researching, um, what historical era, what geographic location, th there's somebody on YouTube. There absolutely is. There absolutely <laughs> is. Somebody. And, <laughs> yeah, and there's somebody else on YouTube who yes. disagrees with them yes. about something fundamental and they're at war exactly. about it. You know, it's every single, it doesn't matter what you're you're looking at. I hear that the knitting subreddits are some of the most uh, <laughs> like dual filled, <laughs> like people people really uh, going at each other uh, subreddits. I, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not a fibrous person, but I hear this. Yeah, I that there's quite a bit of. I stay away from the knitters. I don't know. I. <laughs> you, you were just thing. last episode talking about the toxicity of, yes, of the knitting community. The knit. I know, which is funny because everyone everyone I, who I know who knits is lovely and wonderful, but they all oh, they all tell yes. me. Like, there are some crazy people out there. It's, it's, it's dangerous. <laughs> what I hear. Yeah. And, they I have, and, even... and they have knitting needles, so they could be stabby. I'm just saying. Yeah. Which, there, there's a handy weapon. I mean, and I imagine... I, I was just going to say, yeah. yep. <laughs> whatever sort of weapon you might imagine your characters having, even if it's some fantasy nonsense weapon that you just made up, you could probably find a YouTube channel where somebody has made some sort of weapon like that and figured out how to fight with it. I mean, like when I know on Star Trek, they basically made the Klingons batlets because they look cool. And then some of the, some people are like, well, fuck, we need to figure out how you'd actually, what the fighting style with this actually would be <laughs> in a way that makes sense. And <laughs> and thus was born Klingon martial arts. Yeah. I mean, that's probably too big of a question, but like, how do you develop your own like fantasy martial arts for a completely different culture? Or, or, a, oh, or a fighting style fun. that fits that culture. I would say uh, have it be driven by the other aspects of your world as much as possible. Um, the more world building can feel like cause and effect uh, where everything's interlinked, I think the uh, 
to me at least um the 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 that can really enhance um how it feels as a reader for my two cents anyway <laughs> no, i think absolutely it's it's plugged into everything else right so like i guess if you're gonna start with your world with the fighting style and for some reason that's where you're starting you have a lot of questions you have to answer before i think you can effectively or you have the vibes <laughs> you're going for and you're like i'm gonna have to reverse engineer to get there yep. and that could which that also, could be some really interesting yeah. stuff like, <laughs> totally <laughs> legit yeah completely i mean that makes me think what was that movie i think it's called equilibrium it's like this dystopian yep. future movie that's like everyone takes drugs to have no emotions but it also has this really bizarre gunfighting style that it's entirely like yeah. i wanted this cool looking gunfighting <laughs> style and i'm you know and i'm bending over backwards to justify <laughs> the fact that i'm using it in this movie because it looks cool on film but makes no sense but you know i'm gonna the gun katas i'm yeah. gonna pretend it the makes gun- sense <laughs> The gun katas in Equilibrium are brilliant, and I love them, and I agree with you that it makes absolutely no sense, but I'm so glad that movie exists, because <laughs> where else would we get gun katas, right? Like, Precisely. It's brilliant. And see, it, this just goes to, to prove, dear listeners, it doesn't matter what you do, it will be beloved by someone. So just Probably. give it a try, yeah. and you know... Yeah. Or just go in all in on your nonsense with confidence. We, we which is, we which is entirely what that movie does. Because it's like, yeah. no, this works. We did the, the I, science of it works. We proved it. Shut up. We're moving on. And, and I think Equilibrium is a really good uh, example of if you make your whatever fight thing you want to include, if you make it cool enough kind of won't care about the rest of it if they're just there for the gun cutters like i'm not i'm not going to be penalizing anything else in that story so if we are hitting the end of our hour unfortunately because i could talk about this all day before we sign off we invite our guest stars who come and play with us to leave us a little bit of trivia for our world um so i am very curious what you what you have brought us today as a parting gift uh, so I have a few ideas, but I'm going to ask first um, whether you have any weapons related. I feel like I should make it weapons related because of our topic. But do you have any weapons related world building already? Uh, or is this an open field? So we are we are at kind of an age of exploration-ish technology wise. Um, but we ha- we haven't really done. Did we decide we hadn't done guns yet? We, we decided that, We had yeah, not developed that. that guns yet. don't exist yet. Guns don't exist that, yet. Beyond that, um, we haven't gotten too much into specific weaponry. Yes, we don't have. I don't. I don't think that anything that has been established would be contradicted by introducing a particular weapon okay. fighting style, or and of course, and is this and, and our world is is very diverse, so it could fit into one little okay. corner of the world and and not necessarily be something that is is. Well, I like that. Uh, I like that a lot, and and I I think um, that's a one very good thing to always rem- for us to remember about world building, right? Is how many corners the world has. If you look at our world, you know how yeah. diverse <laughs> yes. it is in pockets everywhere, right? And we we tend to get this thing in sci-fi and fantasy where planet of the hats or country of the yeah. hats, right? Where everybody <laughs> in that country or, or or planet is exactly the same culturally and uh, not not so realistic. Um, all right, uh, what about uh, ma- is magic like ubiquitous? Or- there is relatively, ma- yeah. yeah. Yes, there's magic in every area of the world, and the magic functions a little differently and is used a little differently everywhere. So there's a lot of flexibility. All right. Um, I'm going to give you something that uh, I had already been thinking about, actually, before we had this conversation. But I feel like since we had the knitting needle conversation, uh, I have to do this, that there's... um, 
Uh, and I think this would work best as a pocket, so like a cult or group or uh, a cadre of people, <laughs> a subreddit of people, if you will, um, who are uh, uh, specifically artists who are also fighters who, and it's their tradition to use their artistic tools as uh, doubling as weapons and that uh, everybody who is part of this group in some way um, is uh, using using their artistry as a weapon as well. So that could be knitting needles, it could be, you know, sort of a palette knife that's actually sharp. <laughs> um, uh, some sort of, uh, uh, there's some sort of cultural ideal for them that is encapsulated by that. I love it. So it's, yes, art. Sculpture hammers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I love it. Ooh, toxic paint. Anyway. Um, <laughs> there is a good one. Yeah, they, there could definitely be some tradition, too, about people kind of trying to outdo each other oh, by yeah. building b- bigger and better artistic weapons of some sort and g- gaining uh, some sort of uh, uh, status in their, their group hierarchy that way. I love that. I love, I love the possibilities for a story there. It can go in a very sort of Hannibal esque place of like, you know, making your masterpiece of death. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh my goodness. And then Marshall takes it there. All the way to its <laughs> It was right there. I didn't have to go very far. No, to 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 its natural end, which <laughs> the culinary arts. <laughs> well, it has been a delight having you on. Thank you so much for joining us. And congratulations on the now two weeks past for a future us release of the book. <laughs> I was like, get time warped. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been quite a pleasure and I had a great time. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs> <laughs>